All right, welcome back to the EM Stud Podcast. I'm flying solo today. This is your EMED coach, Dr. Scott Waiters, coming to you with another episode. My partner in crime, ER Dr. Nate, uh, Dr. Nate Lewis out of uh, BCU, is out taking care of patients today, fighting off disease and pestilence and injuries in the ER. So I'm flying solo today, but I've got a very special guest, a dear friend of the podcast, uh, somebody that we've known for the last maybe 10 years, 15 years, and just really watched uh, her trajectory in academics just soar. Um, today, we've got a close friend named Dr. Jillian Schmitz. So Dr. Schmitz, thank you so much for coming on to the EM Stud podcast today. Tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Good morning, and thank you, Dr. Waiters, for inviting me today. I am a board-certified emergency physician. I'm a Chicago girl, um, and I ended up doing my residency at UNC Chapel Hill. And I married a classmate of mine from medical school who is in the military and does orthopedic surgery. So I've had sort of a circuitous um, career as he's moved around the country with his military assignments. Um, so I've primarily worked in academic settings, but I've worked in community hospitals, rural hospitals, freestanding hospitals in now six different states. Um, so it's given me a really fun opportunity to see what emergency medicine can be. Most recently, I'm the clerkship director at Brook Army Medical Center, which is a joint Army and Air Force residency program in San Antonio, um, and now the president-elect of ASAP. Well, Dr. Schmidt, you're being quite humble there. You're a kind of an international superstar in emergency medicine, for sure. And I know that we've spent time together at conferences and collaborated on some projects together. Um, I love that you're kind of a lifelong clerkship director and now leading kind of the biggest organization of emergency medicine, the American College of Emergency Physicians. So that is phenomenal. We're so thankful that you take the time to be with us today. Um, in this new role coming up as ASEP president, I mean, that's, that's a big deal. So for those students that might not understand some of the organizational structures and what's going on, tell us a little bit more about ASEP and its mission. That's a great question. It's almost like the alphabet soup of emergency medicine. There's so many letters and organizations out there. Um, but for me, ASEP is the largest emergency medicine organization. So we have about 40,000 members. Um, we are the oldest. ASEP actually existed before emergency medicine even became recognized as a specialty. And we've really become, the mission of it is providing the highest quality emergency care and becoming the leading advocate for emergency physicians, our patient and the public. And to me, that really has always meant education. How do we provide the best resources so people are practicing that highest quality care? How do we make excellent emergency physicians and how do we really be the champions and the advocates for our members and for the specialty to help define what that looks like? Ah, well said. Um, now give us some, some background and maybe a story like, why did you start pursuing this role? I mean, this is a big mountain you, you've climbed here of going through um, leadership roles, uh, being on committees, leading groups, and now sitting as, as ASEP president. Is there like a story that you want to share about how you kind of got started on this road? Sure. So my um, second year of residency, I ran for the EMRA board of directors, and I had been sort of mentored and encouraged by my associate program director, who had been involved with EMRA and ASEP and was lucky enough to get elected and within hours was whisked to my first meeting, which was ASAP Academic Affairs. And I was just awestruck. It was this room full of program directors and clerkship directors and chairs. And I thought, gosh, this is what I wanna be someday. And at one point within the first few minutes, you know, they asked me from a resident perspective, how did I feel about 
and the whole room turned around and looked at me for my face just turning red and still trying to figure out what Emra even stood for, much less what our positions were. But it was so incredible to me that these really giants in emergency medicine were, were looking to us and to residents and, and medical students for what our opinions were, like how we create the future. And I thought that was such an awesome responsibility to be able to advocate and to represent so many different people at the level of training and to know that that voice really mattered to the leaders in our specialty. Oh, that's really cool. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to picture you blushing in a, in a meeting. I mean, I've seen you speak at conferences and I mean, you really have a great stage presence and, uh, and a great communicator. So that's, that's kind of cool to hear where people have come from and now where they are today. Um, why, why should a student join ASIP? I mean, you talk about this is, you know, what they're going to be when they kind of get done with residency program that might seem far off for students, but why should a student join ASIP? Like what are the, the costs and benefits about what they can expect? So I think it is a tremendous value. So the cost to be both a EMRA and an ASAP member is only $60 for medical students. And what does that get you? The number one word that I would think of, Scott, is, is opportunity. Um, it opens up all sorts of doors and it is really the only place outside of your institution that can help promote you as an emergency physician and give you those resources to succeed. So learning how to ace your clerkship, learning how to audition for your career, the residency fair, the job fair, even the welcome box that you get when you first sign up for Emra and ASAP membership with your antibiotic guide and all your tools. I, I still use them every single day on my shift. Um, an incredible amount of resources to understand what emergency medicine is. I think the other thing is community. Um, it's such an important part of realizing that we are all in this together. This has been an incredibly difficult year. But to have other peers, other mentors from around the country and to help kind of connect people, that networking is, is huge. Um, I can think of times when my husband had his fellowship in, in San Diego and they told me the job market there was impossible and that there were no jobs. That networking, that community is what helped me not only get a job, but the one that I wanted um, because someone made a phone call and within minutes I had people calling me. Um, I think those opportunities to get involved with a committee, to publish papers, to have a leadership position. Um, you talked about, about stage present and public speaking, but even something as those skills that, that I learned were really through ASAP, that professional development, the leadership development of how to give a good talk, you know, how to connect with people, how to do public speaking in front of tens of thousands of people. Um, those are all life and leadership skills that, that I got from ASAP that I think really helped develop me as a professional. Um, and as an educator and emergency physician. Well, that's great. I know um, I looked at the schedule for rebellion and I think I'm speaking after you. I just realized that this week. So um, big act to follow there. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> I'm excited then, to work with you. It'll be a fun conference. Oh, it's gonna be great. And then I, I remember back, I think we were in Chicago when we were there, you were with your husband, I was there with my wife and we, we saw each other at, at Chicago and we spent an evening going through one of the, uh, the, the night's events at the different venues and things like that, had a great time. And the conferences are really, I think a fun time where you get to really build those relationships, collaborate on projects, get to know people in your field. Those are such fun times. And you know, this year, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but ASEP is actually going to meet live this year. We're one of the first groups that's going to actually have a live conference in Boston in October, right? This is going to happen. Woohoo! It's happening. We're very, very excited to be one of the first in-person meetings. Um, so it is scheduled in, in October. 
Um, it is a great place for medical students to attend and I, I hope they have the opportunity to come. It's gonna be such an amazing conference this year. We have over generally 6,000 attendees and it, there's so many things going on at one time. It can almost be overwhelming, but every year I look at the schedule of talks and speakers and I, I can never make it to everything that I wanna to go to because there's just so much going on. But for medical students, I think one, it's an opportunity to see what the specialty offers. Again, there's the, the actual educational events during the day, there's social events in the evenings, there is the residency fair. So the students get to walk around and meet all the program directors to, to talk one-on-one -on -one with residents from those programs and get a flavor for the personality and really understand what's, what's out there. Um, there's also an entire educational track for medical students and residents on, on things like how do I plan for my interview? How do I succeed um, through as a medical student? And how do I apply to emergency medicine and, and give myself the best shot I can to succeed as an emergency physician? So we look forward to hopefully seeing everybody in Boston this year. It's going to be a, a great celebration. I think we're going to have a, a good turnout. And again, students, this is a good opportunity. I mean, where else can you be in a room and actually get to meet program directors, chairs, leaders in emergency medicine? And it really helps if you go into that interview season and hey, you might've met some of these people and you might've seen their work. You can understand their passions and maybe the style for their program. So uh, definitely a lot of value if you're able to attend October, Boston ASAP. Um, Dr. Schmitz, I, I had a student stumble into my office uh, the other day and I love these conversations. You know, They're kind of like, hey, do you have five minutes? And then it turns into an hour. But this student had just been reading some of the stuff coming out in the press. Um, and this is kind of a tough subject here, but. They were, they were worried because they're interested in emergency medicine, and now they're reading these articles in some of our journals and some of the you know print, some of the blogs, hearing the conversation online, and they're worried about the job market for emergency medicine. And so this student walked in, he said, hey, is, is there going to be a job for me, you know, five, 10 years down the road when I get to be an emergency physician? So I know there's been some research, uh, but no paucity of like opinion pieces out there. Everybody's got an opinion. You know, what is your assessment given the, the conversation and the data on the, the future job market situation for emergency medicine? That is a fantastic question. And it's something that we're spending a lot of time and thinking a lot about right now. You know, I think to answer that, it's important to look at our history and how, how did we get to this point? Um, so it's, it's almost 50 years ago, there were no board certified emergency positions. We, we didn't exist. Um, and it wasn't until 1979 that we even became recognized as a specialty. And for decades, we've been saying there's not enough emergency physicians. We need more GME funding. We need more slots. And so we've been putting all of our efforts into helping grow our specialty. And at some point, you become a victim of your own success and you start reaching that saturation point. And this was sort of a predictable estimate that at some point we would have enough emergency positions that we need to look at how do we control our own growth. Um, the workforce study that we completed recently said that by 2030, if we do nothing, we will have a surplus. I have never known an emergency physician to do nothing, right? We're never the ones that just sit on our hands. Um, so this gave us some time to kind of realize that we have to make some market adjustments and we have to look at both the growth of emergency medicine residency training programs, the growth of nurse practitioners and PAs who are practicing in the ED, and what is the demand? How do we address both the supply side and the demand side? And again, that was until 2030. Um, and some of this has not been published yet, so I can't give you exact answers, but as part of the workforce study, we did survey all of the 2019 graduates. Um, and the vast majority of that time were able to find a job. 
So it would imply that although we're getting to market saturation, we weren't there yet in 2019. The reason people are feeling so scared and anxious right now is actually a secondary issue, which was COVID. And it seems sort of ironic that in the middle of a pandemic, people would be losing their jobs. But across the country, what we saw last year is there was a 40% reduction in patient volumes in emergency departments. People were scared to go to the ED. And that is how hospitals make money is off patient visits. So without that adjustment in patient volume, groups stopped hiring. They had to lay people off, their hours got cut. And that is why we saw in 2020, this huge confounding variable with people being able to find jobs because the job market contracted you know, almost overnight. Um, and I think there's a lot of confusion between those two things, right? One is sort of the gradual growth and the supply demand mismatch, which we have 10 years on. The second is this acute contraction of the job market because of COVID. So nobody has a crystal ball. We don't have all the answers, but it is, it is widely believed that once the pandemic resolves and we're already starting to see numbers kind of coming back up, we're not completely back to normal yet. Um, but the anticipation is that the job market will get better as the COVID and pandemic um, kind of improves. But we still have to address those long-term issues of, of growth and supply. And so we're looking at kind of a number of different ways to do that. Um, and I think from a medical student perspective, what you have to know is that things are, are going to change. Um, I don't want to sugarcoat this and say, oh, there's going to be ample jobs everywhere. I think we are going to have some growing pains. And that is an honest answer to where we are currently. But I think the market will, will swing and the projections will change. One is we have to look at supply. Um, so that is something that we're looking at fighting independent practice of nurse practitioners and PAs and knowing that they're Training, while important to a physician-led team, does not in any way replace the competency or training of an emergency physician. And that is something ASAP has always held and believed in. Two is the growth in emergency medicine residency programs. So in 2008, there was less than 1,500 programs. Today, there's over 2,500. So we've seen a tremendous growth in the last really 10 to 15 years. And not only the number of new programs, but even existing programs expanding their complements each year um, that we've reached a pretty high number. And so how, how do we address that? So that's something I'm starting to look at now. I'm working with all the EM organizations is how do we define those standards? You know, previously, we had almost intentionally relatively flexible with how we approve new programs because there, we had projected that there was a deficit. There was a deficit. We need more emergency physicians. Now that we have good data that says that we're kind of getting to the point where maybe we need to slow our growth, we can raise the bar on those standards that would make it more challenging for a new residency program to get approved. We may have to look at, at patient volumes. So right now it is a requirement that you have to have at least 30,000 patient visits at your primary site. But that requirement is the same, whether you have 12 residents or whether you have 60 residents. And so maybe we need to look at, at those numbers of how do we scale back and, and really ensure that we have the high quality training. Um, ultimately, that decision over those standards are, are not made by ASAP, it's made by the ACGME and what we call our RRC, more alphabet soup. But ASAP has a strong voice in advocating for what we think those standards could be and should be and how do we help direct and improve that quality of education and making sure that business interests do not supersede the educational interests of our medical students, of our residents, of our young physicians in training. So that's something that we're looking at right now as well. And then the other piece to that is, is demand. So how do we increase demand? So if you think about 50 years ago, they told us emergency medicine would never exist. 
that we would never become a specialty. And somehow we made the impossible possible. The first year we went to the ABMS, the board, we lost a hundred to two. And they thought, no way, no way will EM ever be a specialty. You don't have a unique body of knowledge. You don't have research. And so we had to fight really hard to get there. But if you had told them in 1979 that in 50 years, we would become one of the top specialties in the country, that we'd be practicing in the middle of a pandemic and doing everything from pediatric emergency care to critical care to telemedicine, it would have blown their minds. So I think it's hard to predict what exactly emergency medicine is gonna look like 50 years from now, but I think it is gonna look a lot different. There's always gonna be the need to staff hospital emergency departments, but I see a lot of opportunities when we look at things like telemedicine that we've been able to do during the pandemic. When we look at freestanding hospitals, uh, where our skills can be used as proceduralists, as um, even intensivists. I have a number of friends who are running ECMO and different things in the hospital now. Um, so I think we have to kind of think broader and bigger of what emergency medicine can be in the future and ensuring that our supply meets that demand. But when we talk from a medical student perspective of, you know, is there going to be a job? Is this the right field? I think it's reasonable to assess that there's going to be some short-term challenges as we get through these growing pains, but that long-term we're going to be fine and the market will correct itself in order to adjust. Um, but I think it, it's an important discussion to have with our medical students. If, if I had last week a, a sort of a non-traditional medical student who's in his mid-40s already, that's hard um, because those really prime making income years are going to be where we need to really ramp up. Um, if you have a little bit longer time scale to let the market adjust, it may be an easier decision. I think it is one factor to take into account when you're choosing a specialty, but ultimately I've always told people not to do things for the money. You know, you've got to do something that you love, that you have a calling for, that you have a passion for. And I firmly believe that emergency medicine, I'm biased, is, is the best specialty out there. Um, and I can't imagine doing anything else. And so for me, this was a no brainer. And I'm very much still encouraging my medical students to consider careers in emergency medicine and that the future is gonna be different, but it's gonna be good. And it's gonna be a great place to practice. But I think you have to take into account a number of different things of what you want your future to be, including those economic considerations and helping make that decision. Yeah, I mean, people are still gonna to come to the emergency department, right? And uh, we're still growing as a country. Um, although we're having excess doctors, I think you're right. I mean, we are the people that we're good at solving problems. I mean, that's what we do in emergency medicine. We solve complex problems. So we do have a problem ahead of us, it sounds like. Uh, you know, maybe the estimates are overblown. Maybe they're not, maybe they're right. But uh, no, it sounds like there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes that a lot of people might not hear about. And it sounds like there's gonna be some bigger position statements, some studies that are going on that are gonna look at this in a more careful light, get some more data. And then again, I mean, ASAP, isn't in control of these things. You're right. It's they're not in charge of uh, medical schools. That's LCAB, double uh, AMC, residency programs. That's you know ACGME, um, and then they're not even in charge of board certification. That's ABIM, right? So all these things. But I think you know ASEP does have the biggest I think political impact uh, as far as emergency medicine is concerned, and so it's good to hear that you guys are are looking at this and studying this and moving forward. So thanks for your work, Dr. Smith. Appreciate that. Um, Absolutely. And you brought up a, a good point there, too, that I mean, not only is the population growing, we're getting older, right? People are living into their 90s. Not you and I, but like there's another person that's getting um, older, right? I mean, 
I hope we know we, we're still 21, but I, I'm, I'm hoping right. that we, we make it someday into our, our 90s. But I mean, there is definitely going to be an increased need um, for emergency physicians in the future because people are becoming more complex. They are sicker. They have more chronic medical conditions that they don't have time to solve in the clinic um, and that we routinely get referrals from other places to manage these complex patients. So absolutely agree that we have to take that into account with the equation that the demand for our services is increasing. We just have to make sure that the supply is, is keeping up with that and not getting ahead of it too much. Well, good. I know that's kind of an elephant in the room. Anytime uh, we're talking about emergency medicine right now, that's kind of the, the posh topic to discuss. But what else is there? I mean, you're passionate about a lot of different things. What other passions do you have related to academics and emergency medicine? Tell us about those. So right now in my current position, I work for a, a military program. I'm on faculty at Uniformed Services University, which is our military medical school in Bethesda. I honestly have the best job ever. I just got back from Pennsylvania and we did a, a mass casualty exercise in the, the hills of Pennsylvania with our medical students. And they had hundreds of patient encounters over 48 hours, you know, in the middle of the woods. And the, it, was, it was incredible. Um, but one of the things I'm interested in is, is kind of working with our military and civilian programs um, to improve our, our education. Um, we're, we're partnering with a lot of different VA systems to get our, our medical students and our residents exposure with, uh, with the VA and, and um, kind of collaborating to increase opportunities for, for military. And I think that's one of the things that we've talked about um, is looking at, at disparities between patients and, and opportunities and realizing that right now, we have really a distribution problem. There's a lot of people who are saturated in certain cities, but rural areas, which make up now one in six Americans, don't have access to emergency physicians. People haven't been willing to take those jobs. So how do we align things like student loan reimbursement, um, Indian Health Service, looking at opportunities where people can pay back that time, not necessarily through a military commitment, but through a process that would improve and incentivize people to move to those areas, to take those jobs that would both improve the quality of care for people in rural areas, but also help us with, with the job market and, and really trying to, to improve our skills. Having worked in a rural ED, I will tell you, it was the hardest I've ever worked. Um, I was the only doctor in the hospital. So not only are you running the ED, but every time they need a central line upstairs or somebody codes, you, you, you're it. Um, you don't have ortho or ENT or neuro in-house, it's just you. Um, and so it made me, I think, a better emergency physician. And so that's one of my passions is, is how do we improve opportunities for training to get our residents into rural areas so they have that experience. Um, and for years, we have not been able to do that for a number of reasons. There were some funding challenges, there was supervision challenges, but as a result of some of our advocacy efforts, um, there is now um, a way to mechanicalize that to be able to pay for those rotations um, and also to have supervision, you know, even by telemedicine in different places and moonlighting experiences where people might have that experience. Um, so that's, that's a huge, uh, really passion of mine as well. Um, but a lot of what, what I'd love to do is, is just to help improve emergency physician leadership and, and really invest in young physicians. Um, because for me, somebody taking a chance on me as a young physician of giving me a leadership opportunity within MRN ASAP, it has opened so many doors and, and really helped jumpstart my career, you know, 10 or 15 years ahead of where many of my peers were. Um, and so now when I look at all the things that need to get done, you know, from, from mental health crises to opioids to boarding in the emergency department, we have a lot of problems to solve. And I've never seen 
besides that have been young physicians, the amount of energy that these kids have, and I, and I call them kids because I feel like they're my kids as, as medical students, but they are phenomenal physicians um, and really opportunities to, to help change things and drive things. And the innovation ideas they have of, of ways to address these complex problems is very humbling. Of like, God, why didn't I think of that? Like, this is amazing. Um, and let me give you the resources and just let you run with it. Um, I'm constantly amazed at, at solutions they come up with. Um, so I think really helping to involve their network and give them the opportunities to, to run and to come up with solutions is another way that I feel ASAP can help elevate our young physicians and for us to improve the quality of care across the country. Well, all right, Dr. Schmitz, thank you for coming on to the EMSTED podcast. Um, if you'd like to follow Dr. Schmitz on Twitter, you can reach her at G-I-L-L-I-A-N-M-D-1, Jillian M-D-1. This again is Scott Wieters, your EMED coach, signing off for another edition of the EMSTED podcast. Feel free also to follow my colleague, ER Dr. Nate. And then also feel free to check out our website, www.emstud.com. Also, make sure you go to our parent organization, saem.org. On behalf of my colleague, ER Dr. Nate, I want to thank you again for spending some time with us on the EMSTED podcast. And until we see you in the hospital, rotate well, my friends.